0: Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter five as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand... And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, the written word that has been preserved for us. We thank you for the word incarnate who is our savior, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who communicates this word to us, who opens up our ears, opens up our eyes, Opens our heart to receive these things. It is apart from Him that we can understand nothing, and so we give you thanks for this. So, further, drive us into a deeper understanding of your word today. Deliver us from all distraction, all error, and we we pray that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. On virtually every dinner table in the Western world, there are two small, modest containers. One holding salt, and one holding pepper. I've joked with my family often about why, out of all the herbs and all the spices in the world, how did we end up with these two? Why don't we have little containers of turmeric and tarragon? Or why not nutmeg and paprika? Or cinnamon and oregano? Could you imagine? Uh, asking your wife to pass the um pass the allspice or, or 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 pass the uh you know pass the cumin. This uh tater tot casserole needs a little something. Did you pass past one of those? Uh, some historians say that our tradition of putting salt and pepper shakers on the table comes from the French, and specifically to Louis XIV, who uh they they might have had a lot of different seasonings available to them, but Louis XIV just wanted salt and pepper, and that was his preference, and so well, if the king wants that, then that must be the thing to do, and we've just we've stuck with that. But the value of salt and pepper goes way back uh, beyond Louis the Fourteenth, way back beyond the seventeenth century. We have these little uh, dispensers of of pretty inexpensive seasonings on our table, and it's, it's easy to overlook their complicated and dramatic history and how they got to where they are today. These things we take for granted had a large role to play in the history of the world. Black pepper, uh, of course, was a key commodity in the medieval spice trade between Asia and Europe, uh, which that, that spice trade opened up roads and commercial activity and Cultural cross-pollinization between East and West, it brought great historical civilizations together. There was such high demand for black pepper that, that for many years it made up about 70% of the trade between Asia Asia and Europe, this thing that we just take for granted, you know, it just comes in those little packets. You get some at, you know, Bojangles or McDonald's, those little things of black pepper, which was worth its weight in gold in the medieval world. I mean, imagine living in medieval Europe without all the flavors and the spices that we're used to today. And suddenly, just amazingly out of nowhere, someone introduces you to black pepper to put on your rabbit or to put on your venison or to put on your, you know, ox meat or whatever you're eating. Wow, black pepper, you'd go nuts. This is amazing. This has flavor. But the importance of salt to the civilizations of the world goes even further back, and salt is much more vital. The ancients learned how to mine salt from underground uh, beds containing rock salt. They also had methods for extracting salt from salt water. It was critical that they learn how to develop ways to produce salt, because you can live without pepper. You can't live without salt. Salt is a necessary part of our diet. You will die without it. We need about uh, 200 milligrams of salt a day, though our problem today is not getting enough salt. It, our problem is getting too much. We, uh, a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup has about five times the amount of sodium that you need for the day, five times your daily recommended allowance, if you trust that. Still, Man, soup is salty, if uh, if you've paid attention. Salt is everywhere. Salt is in everything, from cereal to soda to deli meat. We don't even think about it, and we've got too much of it. But in the ancient world, getting enough salt was a regular concern. And not only was it uh, necessary uh, for your diet, but it had a world. Salt had a world of practical uses. Before refrigeration, the way to keep your food from spoiling was to salt it. Salting your meats and pickling your vegetables was how you preserved your food. Bacteria can't grow in a high salt condition. Salt also amplifies the flavor uh, of your food, it it blocks bitterness, it uh, enhances good flavors. Have you ever put salt on a watermelon? Am I alone in that? Does anybody else do that? You put salt on a watermelon? Try this next time. sprinkle a little salt on your chocolate ice cream, and you will thank me later. It's that perfect intersection of salty and sweet. Just trust me. Just trust me. Try it. Salt changes the chemistry of your cooking. It lowers the freezing temperature of water. It raises the boiling uh, point of water. Uh, It does all these amazing things when you add it to dishes. It improves the aroma and the texture of certain foods. And so it was such a valuable commodity that it produced a number of common phrases and words. If someone is worth their salt, it means that they're worth what they're getting paid. If someone is not worth their salt, it means they aren't worth what they're getting paid. I've read, read in many places that it was common in the Roman empire to pay workers in salt and even Roman soldiers at various times were paid in salt instead of money. Their monthly allowance was their salarium. It was their salt. It's where we get the word salary. Our word salary comes from the word salt. Salt was as good as money. You could trade salt for other things. The habit of salting your green vegetables gave us the word salad, uh, S-A-L. Anytime you see a word that starts with S-A-L, it probably has something to do with salt. Saline, uh, salt, salad, salary. And then perhaps the greatest compliment that you can ever pay anyone is, boy, he's a real salt of the earth kind of guy. What we mean by that is that he is genuine, honest, dependable. He's down to earth. He's not uppity. He's not pretentious. He's just a solid, mature human being. And we get that phrase directly from Jesus. And Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount in, a, in, in reference to his people, the church, the new Israel that he's carving out and he's drawing out of the old Israel, the new covenant people that he's bringing out of the old covenant, he's calling them the salt of the earth. And he's using it within this context of the value and the importance and the function of salt in the ancient world. The people knew how valuable and important salt was and what a role it played in their civilization. And he's using that term for his people. Let's quickly remember and recap where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's gone out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and to defeat Satan. And then Jesus turns to begin his ministry in the northern country of Galilee, the northern territory of Galilee, just as John the Baptist is imprisoned by Herod. Jesus goes on offense. He takes the offensive and he goes from town to town in that northern territory. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not around Jerusalem. He's far away from Jerusalem. He's out among the fishermen and the farmers and the common tradesmen and the merchants. He's teaching. He's healing. He's casting out demons and he's announcing the arrival of his kingdom. He has called his core group of apostles and now he sits down on a mountain and he begins to teach. The last time that we were in Matthew's gospel together, we saw this opening song where he sings all these blessings to his people. The Beatitudes are arranged like a poem, and are very they're, there's a lyrical quality to these. There's a poetic quality, and so uh, whether, whether it's a poem or a song, it, in, in every way, uh, there's very little difference between a poem and a song. Jesus is singing over his people. He's singing these blessings, and he sings... This is what you are. These are all declarations. You are poor in spirit. You mourn. You hunger and thirst after righteousness. You are meek. And here is how you are blessed presently and how you are going to be blessed further as the kingdom of heaven rushes in. So in spite of all the resistance and the oppression and the calamity that you have to put up with, Jesus says you are happy you are blessed, you are secure, you are full of riches, you are full of the resources of the kingdom of heaven. You make up the kingdom of heaven where you are right now. Now he continues to issue some similar sentiments. These are declarations still, they're not imperatives. In other words, what he continues to say is you are not you shall be, or you ought to be, or I order you to be. These are declarations. They're declarations with warnings. There are responsibilities attached to these declarations. But he does not say, try to be the salt of the earth. He does not say, try to be the light of the world. He doesn't even say, you're like salt. You are like light. He says, you are salt. You are light. Kind of like how Romeo says, uh, Julia is the sun. Uh, Julia is not like the sun to Romeo, to his world. She is the sun. It's something different. It's it's a poetic way of of expressing truth. And Jesus says in the same way, you are the salt. You are the light. There's no other. If the world is looking for any other salt, it's not going to find it anywhere else. If the, is li- if the world is looking for light, there's nowhere else to go but to my people, the church. That's where they're going to find it. And then, and then with that comes a warning. If you don't leverage your inherent saltiness and your inherent shininess as lights, something's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Well, first, Jesus calls his people the salt of the earth. Why? How are they the salt of the earth? of the earth. What are the properties of salt that describe the citizens of the kingdom? Well, salt is ordinary, it's everywhere, and yet it's vital for life. God's people are everywhere, they're common, and yet the church exists for the life of the world. The world can't live without it. Salt makes things taste better, it's a preservative that stops from uh that, that stops corruption. So the church's good influence in the world is a corrective against corruption, and it's a preservative against God's judgment. Salt was also a component of Old Testament sacrifices. Yahweh commanded in Leviticus chapter 2, he commanded his people and his priests never to offer a sacrifice without salt. Salt was to be offered with every offering, every sacrifice. One of the reasons for this was that because when you put something on the altar... That's almost always a ceremonial meal. Uh, When you you put an animal on the altar, the Lord eats his portion. He he consumes his portion in the fire and the smoke. But then the priest would eat and the worshiper would eat as well. And so it makes sense to salt something, to season something that you're going to eat together. But you also salt it because you're purifying The sacrifice. You're killing the corruption. You salt the sacrifice that's going through the fire in your place because you need to be salted. You need to be purified. You need to be preserved. Leviticus 2 calls the salt on the grain offering, uh, uh, God calls that the salt of the covenant. And that's a curious phrase there. The, The purity of salt points to the holiness of the covenant. God has set his favor on his people in a special way. He has salted them. He has preserved them. He has separated them and set them apart. They are not corrupted, not corrupted by idolatry or the lusts of the flesh or the deceits of Satan. They are salty and they are pure. Now, even though there are all these good connotations and good features of salt, there are also plenty of negative features, negative aspects of salt. Jesus has salted the earth with his people. And that's something that armies did after conquering their enemies, to salt the earth. That's not a blessing, that's judgment. If you conquer a people and you never want their civilization to be restored or or to have a very difficult time coming back to life for a long time, you sow the fields with salt, not seed. You sow salt in the fields in order to prevent crops from growing and to prevent your enemies from rebuilding. So salt is associated with judgment and defeat. Salt was associated with the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. That area became a salt waste after God destroyed the cities. Lot's wife turned to salt. Uh, Salt has a, a judgment connotation. Jesus talks about the coming judgment in Mark chapter 9, and another strange phrase that Jesus uses. He says, everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. What does it mean to be salted or seasoned with fire? Well, Jesus is connecting salt and fire. Both of them purify. Both of them are associated with judgment. Both of them burn out the crops of sin. Both of them destroy the fruits of sin. They salt the fields so nothing sinful can grow again. So all of this positive salty language and all of this negative salty language describes the function of the church. The church is indeed the cleansing, purifying agent on earth. We preserve the earth from corruption. Wherever you are and wherever you go, you are a preservative. In whatever environment you are in, you serve as a barrier to rebellion against God. You speak up and say, no, we're not going to do that. No, we aren't going to go there. No, of course, we're not going to do this thing. Yes, we are going to please God with everything that we do. We're going to seek to please him. We're not going to worship idols. We're not going to establish idols. We're not going to set them up. We're going to knock them down. That's why we're here. And your presence impedes decay. Your presence impedes corruption. Also, the church, more than that, enhances the flavor of life. Food without salt is just sad. If you've ever had just uh, boiled, unseasoned chicken on a plate with some boiled-to-death vegetables, that's the saddest. Just, just give me a package of crackers or something. That's just, I, at least they've got a little salt on them. <laughs> you know, It's just dead plants and animals on a plate. Salt brings flavor to life, and so does the church. When she functions as she is designed, she makes everything better. The church has a terrible reputation for doing the opposite, however. The church has this bad reputation of making the world bland and boring and pointless and removing all the joy out of life. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers, which I'm sure he had a strong point. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, he wrote in his diary as if as if he were writing something Extraordinary. As if he were writing something just absolutely surprising, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, I have been to church today and am not depressed. <laughs> well, if any of this criticism is well deserved, and I don't doubt that it is at times in history, if any of this criticism is well deserved, it is a tragedy. We are not here to depress the world, we're not here to uh, be uh, and act like undertakers. Uh, the church is the people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We are the people who see his glory and his fingerprints over everything that is true and beautiful and good in the world and we give thanks for that. We take great delight in all that he's made and all of the joyful and lovely products of human civilization. Uh, beautiful and lovely and true music and art and theater and books and sports and games and hobbies and good food and good drink, and we use them all in gratitude. Occasionally, I hear uh, Christian uh, criticisms of, of sports and games, like, you know, sports are dumb. Baseball's dumb, right? Hockey's dumb. I know. I know it's dumb. And my heart is big enough to love dumb things, I love dumb things. I love you. (laughs) All of these things that are the products of human art and imagination and endeavor and work that are true and lovely and beautiful... Um, novels and, and great films and great stories we participate in their right and holy and thankful use. We give thanks for these things. We radiate thanksgiving this is this is you talk about being salty and shiny in a fearful and anxious and depressed world. The people of God are. The people who are serene and happy, who bring a sparkle of joy to everything, who are truly grateful. Faithful servants of King Jesus are diffusers of joy and gratitude, and we make the world taste better, not worse. And yet, there are parts of the world, there are dimensions of this world, parts of this world system that are not true, and not beautiful, and not good. They are corrupt. They're deceitful and they're foolish. They're barbaric and they're wicked and bloodthirsty and putrefying. There are things to this world that are abominable. And so the church also salts the world with fire. Wherever the spirit-filled people of God go, they light the world on fire. We bring the fiery, saving judgment of God. The church is like the salt on the offering, sprinkled all over the earth to make the world a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. Jesus says, you, child of God, brothers and sisters, you are salt. The only question is whether you're going, to be, you're going to be tasty salt or useless salt. Are you going to be a preservative for the world? Are you going to bring out the good flavors of the world or not? If you lose your flavor, you're useless, good for nothing. You can't salt salt. Uh, even though I think there was a time my son tried to ketchup, ketchup. If we just put more ketchup on it, it'd be more ketchupy. You can't do that with salt. You can't salt, salt. So, so salt that's been used up and is then thrown out on the road and trampled underfoot. That's not a vague threat. These people listening to Jesus are required now to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They and their world are about to be cast out and trampled under the feet of the Romans. Uh, if they've lost their savor. Uselessness invites disaster. So Jesus turns from the image of salt then to the image of light. And light was another precious commodity in the ancient world. Imagine living in a world without electric lights. Imagine turning off all the lights in your house and then lighting the whole living room with the fireplace and maybe a candle or two. Some lamps in houses from Jesus' time, some lamps would have just had a single flame. Prevailing darkness was a reality for all of human history up until about 140 years ago. When the sun went down, it was dark. If you had groups of houses in cities, you had several sources of light together uh, that that might have made some some more light. And if you're outside the city, you would have seen the city for miles, especially if it was up on a hill. You could see the light because there's nothing else around you competing for that light, uh, except for maybe the moon and the stars if it's a clear night. And so Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world. The world that sits in gloom under the fear of death, the world who is under despair, the world who thinks nothing really matters, to that world, Jesus shines the light of life and hope so that now you can see things clearly. Jesus is the light of the world. And he says to the people, you also are the light of the world. He does this often. Jesus will say something about himself and he'll turn and he'll say to his people, you're that also. Remember when he was talking to the woman at the well, he said, I'm the source of living water. But then he turns and he says, if you come to drink from me, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Because the head and the body are always connected. What's true of the head is true of the body. And so Jesus is the light, and then we are all lights reflecting his light, which means that we can see, which means that we can know the truth. And then as we radiate that truth, as we shine, people around us can see clearly, and they're pointed to the truth. The lies and the corrupt things that like to hide out in darkness are exposed. As Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. You shine light on the unfruitful works of darkness. You say, hey, look at that. Check that out. That's rebellion. That's against God's law. That's perversion. That's murder. That's hateful. You all see that? God says, don't do that. You define it for what it is. You call it what it is. You shine the light. And that has two possible outcomes. One is that with the shame of exposure comes repentance and confession and cleansing. The other outcome is that you expose it so that it is judged. We have all these Psalms in the book of Psalms that call out God's judgment on the wicked. So like salt has a double use, positive and negative, so does light. And like salt can become useless if it doesn't flavor the stuff around it anymore, you who are lights, you can put a basket over that light. You can shroud that light in darkness, cover it up. How? How can you cover that light up? Do you ever worry that someone might find out that you're a Christian? Do you ever, do you ever worry that someone may discover that you actually believe what the Bible says? Would you be embarrassed if someone found out where you spend your Sunday mornings? If they knew you read the Bible? If they knew that you actually believed it? Do you hesitate to speak up when people around you are propagating wicked things? When people are speaking lies, do you, do you hesitate to speak up? Are you more comfortable flying under the radar hoping that nobody finds out who you really are? What are you ashamed of? Why do we have this reflex? And I have to confess, there are many times in my life where I felt the same way. I'm speaking out of experience. Why do we do that? Who are we ashamed of? You're ashamed of Jesus. You're ashamed of his name. Ashamed of the one who stands before the Father and names your name before the Father who is not embarrassed of you sinner that you are and I am. He's not embarrassed to name our name in front of the Father. And yet we are embarrassed to be associated with him who is the perfect sinless man and king of the cosmos. You're embarrassed to be associated with the king of all that is. You're embarrassed of his perfect word. Why? Because you think there are people who won't respect you anymore? If you say who you are and you live as light and salt, this allure of respectability of man and the fear of man are these twin idols that once you start worshiping them, once you start indulging them, it is very, very difficult to find an off-ramp. You start letting go of doctrines and beliefs one by one that you think, well, that's not respectable. Nobody's going to respect me if I believe that, if I do that, if I think that. One by one, you start to let them go. And you become one of these Christians, you know, well, I'm a Christian, but not one of those crazy Christians who takes the Bible literally. I mean, I don't really think there was a flood. Come on, those Red Sea crossing. Don't even get me started on the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection. You know, I just believe the parts about loving your neighbor, which by the way, you've never read because, you know, Come on, be serious, you know, but that's that's who you are. You understand if you start saying that, that means you're not a Christian, right? You understand that you've, you've let go of the core of the gospel. You're not an orthodox Christian in any sense. The gospel will never be respectable, to an unbelieving secular and pagan world. They're never going to respect you. They're never going to respect Jesus. They aren't going to respect the gospel. Just embrace that, just just accept it. But earning the respect of unbelievers, that's not the point to begin with. Their world is upside down. They call evil good and good evil. Earning their respect is not the point. It's calling them to repentance. That's the point. It's announcing and warning. The kingdom is here. Better get on board. Calling them to submit to the genuine article. We're calling them to the truth of the gospel. We're not calling them to accept some nuanced, massaged, false gospel with all the difficult parts taken out, with all the hard parts taken out. So you take the basket off the lamp and you let it shine for what it is, and all of its radiance. There's almost this passive um, action that Jesus is calling us to. He just says, let your light shine. He doesn't say make your light shine, just let it shine for what it is. This is who I am, let it shine. And this way of letting this light shine is the, is, the, is the only way that we're called to broadcast this reality that we've accepted and that we trust. This reality, this truth that is consistent and orderly and has logic and integrity. Following Jesus and loving his word is the only way of life, period. Never be embarrassed about that. It is the truest Truth there is. Be bold in that. Be confident. Please never be ashamed of Jesus. Let your light shine before men, Jesus says, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. By our obedience to God, by seeking to please him in all things, by following his word in Jesus' name, what we're doing is going around and we're reshaping the world in our work. We're reshaping the world and we're offering it back to God as a sacrifice, a bright, salty, fiery sacrifice. By our work, the world is lit up so that people can see the works of God evident in the lives of his people. And through the power and blessing of the Holy Spirit, they see there is no alternative source of salt and light. There is no other preservative. There is no other guide. The church is it. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. There's no other way, which means that if the church is no longer salty, if it hides its light, the world dies. If the church is salt and light, then the world is saved. Also remember and notice that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world. We're not the salt of heaven. We're not the salt of of the church. We're the salt of the earth. We're the salt of the world. Planet earth is our workshop. The world uh, is, is the arena of our work. And the world needs the church or else the world dies. Throughout our study of Matthew's gospel so far, we've, we've made a point of noticing all the echoes of Israel's history in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus. And, and there's uh, even a reference here in, um, in this piece of teaching. When God made his covenant promises to Abraham, God pointed Abraham to look down to the sand of the beach of the seashore and to look up at the stars of the sky as the signs of of his covenant. He said, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. Your descendants will reign in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus does something similar here. Jesus points us down to the salt of the earth and up to the light of the city on the hill. The city on the hill ultimately is that bright shining city descending from heaven that we get to see in the closing chapters of revelation the new jerusalem the city of god but the people who jesus is instructing here are the fulfillment of those promises to abraham they are the citizens of heaven they are the stars that shine as daniel said in daniel 12:3 the citizens of heaven who are living on earth to purify and enrich the earth. That was supposed to be the function of Israel, but now Jesus assigns these roles and responsibilities to the church. Remember who he's addressing in this sermon. This is the same group that he addressed in the Beatitudes. This is spoken in the verse before this. These are the persecuted. These are the poor in spirit. These are the ones who mourn and hunger and thirst after righteousness So he moves directly from speaking to these persecuted people to talking about their function and their roles as salt and light. You you can't get out of this the idea that if only we would be delivered from hardship, if only we would be delivered from oppression, if only we could improve our situation, our status, our career our life situation, whether married or single, whether satisfied or dissatisfied with where we are, if only all of that could change, then and only then can I really be the salt of the earth. Then I can really shine as a light. No, there's no contingency here holding up your identity as salt and light. Uh, It's not based on your life situation. It's not based on the economy. It's not based on the job market. None of that changes anything. You are right now, you are right now the salt of the earth. Are you salty? You are right now the light of the world. Are you shiny? Once again, I'm not going to tell you to try to be salt, try to be light. You are, that's your identity. What I'm asking, what Jesus asks you is to evaluate when you head back into your various arenas of influence tomorrow, will you go with that confidence and with that identity? That's who I am. I am salt. I am light. That's who I am. This is why I exist. This is why God put me in this position. That's my calling and my purpose. Embrace that identity and never be ashamed of your Lord Jesus. Never be ashamed of his word. Never be ashamed of his claim on your life and the world. All you have to do is just take the cover off. Put away your fears. Forget who respects you. Go, make the world taste better. Radiate joy and gratitude and worship of King Jesus and shine the light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Please do give us this confidence and and this sense of our identity uh, that we might be bold, that that we might be strong and courageous and to be the people you have called us to be, that you have ordained us to be. We ask you this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. And now let us continue worshiping our God by bringing his tithe and our offerings.